conflict in the Middle East is escalating. Just over a week ago, three U.S. soldiers were killed in Jordan. On Friday, the U.S. retaliated. A series of airstrikes targeted groups that the U.S. believes were responsible for those deaths. White House spokesman John Kirby addressed the attacks on Friday evening. U.S. military forces struck more than 85 targets at seven facilities utilized by Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and the militant groups that they sponsor. Three of the facilities are in Iraq. Four of them are in Syria. U.S. officials believe that the American soldiers in Jordan were killed by strikes from groups in Iraq and Syria that are backed by Iran and are aligned with Hamas. And if that sentence is confusing to you, you are not alone. It is really hard to understand how these conflicts all fit together. And I think what's important to remember is this has already escalated. Like, we are in the escalation right now. Shane Harris is the intelligence and national security correspondent for The Post. And we called him to help us understand what led up to the U.S. decision to carry out these strikes and what the consequences could be. And I think they're significant as well because they followed the first fatalities of U.S. service personnel in the Middle East since the war between Israel and Hamas began in October. So what we're seeing here is an escalation of hostilities that U.S. officials have long been worried about. And the question is, what happens going forward? From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, February 5th. Today, Shane is walking us through how the attacks on October 7th have led us to this moment. And we talk about the line that U.S. officials need to walk to avoid an all-out war in the Middle East. So, Shane, I think a lot of regular Americans are looking at the headlines these days and asking this question of how did we get here? And how is it that this Hamas attack on Israelis back on October 7th has somehow resulted in American service members being killed in Jordan and then us bombing Iraq and Syria? And like, what do these things have to do with each other? So can you walk me through the steps that led to where we are now, starting, I guess, with October 7th? Sure, absolutely. And it and it is confusing because these events can somehow seem sort of disconnected from one another. And the connections between them are often loose, but they are pretty significant. So October 7th, of course, Hamas launches this surprise attack uh, out of Gaza and the south of Israel. And as we all remember, it kills more than 1,200 people. They took more than 200 captives. Israel begins marshalling, of course, a military response to that, which has, takes the form of the, the campaign that's going on in Gaza now. At the same time, a number of different groups in the region who have different kinds of alliances with Iran also start making moves. So notably in Lebanon, where you have Hezbollah, which is this very, very heavily armed uh, non-state group, uh, began attacks across the border on Israel it said, in solidarity with Hamas fighters that were attacking from Gaza. We also mm -hmm. saw this rebel group in Yemen called the Houthis taking similar kinds of actions, it said, in solidarity with fighters 
with Hamas. Notably, these attacks took the form of attacks on shipping and vessels in the Red Sea, kind of harassment of those vessels, some drone uh, apparent, uh, attempted drone attacks on even U.S. vessels as well. Uh, but but why? Like, why would, if if this group from Yemen, the Houthis, if they are interested in attacking Israel or supporting Hamas, then why are they attacking ships going through the Red Sea? I think this, the short answer to that is because they can. Um, you can think of this as October 7th happens and a number of different groups in the region that are opposed to Israel— and want to demonstrate some kind of solidarity with Hamas, which has launched this massive attack, this devastating attack on Israel, everyone starts kind of doing what they're able to do to cause trouble Mm -hmm. in the region. So for Hezbollah, that is having some direct conflicts across the border with Israeli forces. For the Houthis, who have drones, who have helicopters, who have boats, who have anti-ship missiles, and the ability to cause disruption against uh, that would harm the U.S., that might hurt Israel, that would hurt Israel's supporters, they're going to go and do that bit. Uh, And then you have these Iranian-backed militias that operate in Iraq and Syria that start attacking U.S. forces also in response. You can kind of think of this as it's a bit of a free-for-all in some ways. And there Mm -hmm. are Israeli and U.S. officials who I've talked to who think that the October 7th attack itself was designed to instigate these kinds of offensive operations from allies of Hamas and that are backed by Iran. Interesting. So so that phrase, backed by Iran, we hear that a lot, as you say, when, I, when it comes to this group, the, the Houthis in Yemen, when it comes to these other groups in Syria and Iraq. What does it mean that they are backed by Iran? Broadly speaking, what this means is that these groups are receiving money, weapons, or some kind of training or expertise, maybe in the way of intelligence support from Iran. Sometimes these collections are more well-documented than others. Sometimes they're a bit loose. But the Iranian-backed phrase essentially means that these groups are out there doing their operations, but kind of their patron, if you want to think about it, is Mm. the government of Iran. Now, importantly, what this does not always mean is that Iran is calling the shots. With some of these groups, to say they're Iran-backed doesn't necessarily mean that they're Iran-controlled or Iran-directed, as if, you know, we shouldn't think of this as, you know, someone in Tehran is calling the Houthis in Yemen and saying, today I want you to hit the following vessels. It's more that these groups are aligned with Iran's interests. They share common interests, common enemies. They receive backing and support from Iran and kind of have a broad mandate to do the things that will be in Iran's interest, but not necessarily taking direct orders all the time from Iran, although those connections are stronger in some places, weaker than others. But we should not think of Iranian-backed as in these groups are just arms of Iran. They're proxies. They're operating at the, hmm. you know, through Iranian support, but they do have a degree of independence, and some of them have their own agendas. And what is Iran's interest in getting involved in all this? Why are they spending all this money to send funding, to send arms to these other groups to carry out these attacks? Yeah, it's a great question, and I think in some ways it's the big question. Why is Iran doing this? I think one of the the clearest reasons is that having these kinds of proxy forces, whether they be Houthis in Yemen or uh, linkages to Hezbollah in Lebanon or these Iranian-backed groups in Iraq and Syria, allow Iran to 
destabilize the region without getting directly involved. I mean, if you just take、mm-hmm. a look at, for instance, the, this attack in late January, this drone attack that killed the three American service personnel at the base in Jordan, that's the United States has blamed directly on a Iranian-backed militia group. I mean, there the Iranians are able to hit the United States, which is a story that they can tell politically to their audience. It's a way of letting the United States know that we're here, we can cause trouble for you, but they don't have to do it directly. And using these proxies allows Iran to engage in a kind of lower-grade conflict, and in some cases, maybe even cause some real disruption without directly taking on the United States. This is the whole nature of proxy warfare: is that it's not a direct shooting match between one state and another. So, what they get out of it is the ability to really throw their weight around. Uh, in in the Middle East, and to be a real security threat and challenge to Israel, to the United States, and to its partners,、uh, and including countries in the Gulf like Saudi Arabia, that is one of Iran's biggest adversaries. And just to be clear, the strikes that happened over the weekend, those were in Syria and Iraq, but notably not in Iran. Why did they avoid actually、uh, striking Iran directly? Because an attack inside Iran directly would be seen as an attack on Iran, and that would be a cause for Iran potentially to respond directly. To the United States for attacking on its sovereign territory, so you're absolutely right. These attacks were designed on proxy forces. That word again, but only in Iraq and Syria, and not as an attack on the territory of Iran. That's interesting because I, I feel like the language that I've heard in the aftermath of some of these attacks executed by、um, some of these Iran-backed groups is that we are here standing up for our Palestinian brothers and sisters, and we are all about like trying to、um, support Gaza against Israel. But what you're saying is that that might be true, but it's also more complicated, and that Iran has its own interests,、um, not only when when it comes to pushing back against Israel, but also in its relationship with the U.S. That's right, and for many of these. Proxy groups, October seventh, the October seventh attacks presented an opportunity for them to stand in solidarity with Hamas, which is then you know something that I think that they they both want to do and want to be able to tell their supporters that they're doing,、uh, and to sort of join into the fight. So I think all of these things are true, but these proxy groups, of course, were operating with Iranian support well before the October seventh attacks. Those attacks, though, have fundamentally. I think both increased the volume of activity by the proxies and have really changed the strategic landscape because, as you said, they do see themselves as taking advantage of this moment to stand with Hamas. I think some analysts believe that Hamas leaders wish that these groups would be more forceful, and we're hoping、mm-hmm. for maybe. An all-out kind of conflict, like maybe Hezbollah would launch an attack from Lebanon on Israel and open a second front in the war. That hasn't happened. Interestingly, we've seen these proxy groups raise the level of tension and raise the level of、um, of attacks, but things have not broken out into, for instance, a full-scale shooting war between Hezbollah and、uh, Israel. Although there are exchanges of fire, it hasn't erupted into this multi-pronged. Huge war in the Middle East, which perhaps Hamas hoped it would. So you said that this was a way for Iran to potentially destabilize the region.、Um, why would they want to do that? What do they have to gain from that? Iran would like to be the dominant regional power in the Middle East. 
right, and in that part of the world. Um, and to do that, they need to undermine the influence and the power of the United States and its allies, notably Saudi Arabia is one. Saudi Arabia is kind of Iran's mortal enemy uh, in the region. So using these proxy forces that have the effect of, you know, on the far end actually killing U.S. personnel uh, and in kind of in the medium area, you know, causing instability, tension, causing us to potentially be, you know, tied up in that region as well. I mean, these are things that I think Iran sees as generally in its longer-term interest as part of this bigger struggle. I think you could argue that there's a lot of room for miscalculation in there as well, right? And you could see in Iran's response to that drone strike that killed three service personnel in Jordan that they understood that this thing could run away from them very quickly, that these proxies could get out of hand, that they could do something that went too far and then ignite a much bigger conflict, potentially even directly with the United States, which is not something that Iran wants. They want to kind of keep things at this maybe level of a simmer and not quite a boil, if that makes sense. After the break, we go back to the attack in Jordan that killed three U.S. soldiers and how that left President Biden with a very difficult decision. We'll be right back. So I want to go back and pick up with the timeline um, at the point that the U.S. that the U.S. troops are are attacked um, in Jordan last week. Um, obviously, that was a big moment for the U.S. because this is U.S. service members who are um, who are casualties now. Um, but talk to me about the decision-making by the U.S. government after that and the factors that they were weighing in figuring out how to respond to this. Right. So the attack happens on January 28th at this outpost in Jordan, which is doing a support mission for U.S. forces that are actually in Syria uh, trying to prevent a resurgence of the Islamic State or ISIS. Um, so the, the Biden administration pretty immediately determines that this drone attack is launched by one of these Iranian-backed militias and that it came from Iraq. Uh, and President Biden pledged that he would respond to it. And this is also the same group, we should say, that has launched more than 150 attacks since the October 7th invasion on troops stationed around the Middle East. None of mm -hmm. those had resulted in any fatalities. Now, three service member per personnel have been killed. The United States is going to have to respond in a much bigger way than it has. So two days later, the president said that he had decided on a response to the attack, but he didn't say what it would be. And everyone is kind of left thinking, all right, this is going to be, you know, obviously some pretty forceful attack on the Iranian-backed militia groups, maybe Iranian military facilities themselves. It's going to have to be something that is calibrated to say to the Iranians, you're going to now have to pay a price because you killed three of our people. This isn't about mm -hmm. you sent some drones against a ship or against a base and we shot them down as we have before. Now you've killed people. We have to extract a price from this in order to also deter you from doing it in the future. And days go by and there's no attack. And lawmakers on the Hill, especially from the Republican Party, begin criticizing the White House, saying, why are you waiting this long? What we need to be doing right now is turning up the heat on Iran. It took 165 strikes, three soldiers to die, two Navy SEALs, and now Biden wants to do something? 
So it does finally then come uh, just this last Friday when the U.S. carries out these different airstrikes using fixed-wing aircraft as well as cruise missiles and kind of takes this you know, array of strikes against the, the, the militias as well as some of the IRGC forces. I think like, IRGC meaning? Uh, the IRGC is the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. And, and what, did they, what did they actually hit? Like what were they actually aiming at? Well, we know that they hit a number of weapons facilities uh, that they used, hit bunkers that are controlled by, are used by the IRGC, um, so-called command and control operations, which tells you that those are places that would be um, where you might expect to see senior personnel working and directing strikes. The expectation here was that they would blow up a lot of weapons, they would blow up intelligence centers, and I think that they would kill some forces. I think that there was some of these targets were chosen, I think, with an expectation that there would be personnel there and perhaps some rather senior ones too. We don't know. It's still unclear um, whether or not anyone was killed. And the administration is going to take criticism. They already are from Republican lawmakers saying, you telegraphed these strikes and waited too long, so all the bad guys left. So there was nobody Mm -hmm. left to hit. But the important thing to remember here is that these strikes were targets that the U.S. had on a list. They knew that they could hit them, and they decided to do that. And what they're trying to do is both send a message to Iran and the proxies, but also to degrade those militias' abilities to launch further attacks, which is why you do things like blow up weapons facilities and weapons depots. It's why you hit bunkers. So it's designed to send a message as well as to wound these groups and make it harder for them to carry out future strikes. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, this runs the risk of an active retaliation by Iran or by one of these Iran-backed groups because they have just been bombed. What could that look like, and how worried is the U.S. government about that potentially happening? Yeah, this is where we talk about, you know, the risk of escalation. We are going from a point where, you know, there was relatively kind of low levels of conflict to one where there have been more than 150 strikes by Iranian militias against U.S. forces since October 7th. Now what happened is one of those strikes resulted in casualties, which kind of ratchets things up again. So we're kind of walking up the escalation ladder. For every one of those steps, the United States can take a response that is calibrated to hopefully not draw another step up the ladder. So what we saw happening with these strikes over the weekend, I think, is an effort by the Biden administration to, in a sense, kind of pause things from escalating. And you even saw after the drone strike that killed those three service personnel, a statement by one of the militia groups that it was going to stop targeting American personnel. You saw Iran come out publicly and say, we don't want a war with the United States. The way oh, interesting. Read, so, so they're worried. They're worried, yes. Iran, and, Iran does not want a direct conflict with the United States. That would be very bad for Iran. It would be very bad for the United States, to be clear, and for a lot of people mm-hmm. who live in the region. But there are a number of steps between where we are now and a full-scale shooting war between Iran and the United States. And I think there is clear evidence that both sides want to avoid getting to that point. So things are kind of taking place here in this very combustible kind of middle, if you like, Um, which sounds like, okay, all sides sort of know what the rungs on the ladder is and everyone's under control. 
But it's clearly not under control, right? Because if the Iranian-backed militias are launching more than 150 strikes against U.S. personnel, no one's getting killed. But then one day somebody does get killed, three people in fact. This is how things get out of control. This is how things go from sort of zero to 60 really quickly. Um, and within- Also, if you say that Iran isn't necessarily calling the shots here, yes, they're sending the, the, the money and the arms to some of these groups. But, like, do they know that they can prevent these groups from uh, carrying out another attack on U.S. troops that would escalate things in a way that maybe Iran doesn't even want. Yeah, I think you've just put your finger on it. Exactly. And I think this is exactly what the White House is thinking right now, that it knows that Iran does exercise some level of influence over these groups. Um, And you even heard in the public statement by these Iranian-backed militia groups that are the the ones being held responsible for the drone attack that killed the three personnel, you could— get the sense from it that they were getting pressure from Iran to say it, to say we're not going to do these mm-hmm. attacks on the U.S. anymore. So, yes, Iran mm-hmm. does, execute, does have a level of influence here. And I think in some of these strikes, what the Biden administration is trying to tell Tehran is use it. You know, call these people off, back them down. We know you can. We want you to do more. This is kind of the way, because we don't have diplomatic relations with Iran, this is how we send these signals. So, these strikes, while they look very dramatic, and I think they're and they're significant, are also designed to try and kind of like put a stopper in the bottle, if you like. So I know that this week, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is going to be in the Middle East. Can you talk a little bit about why he's there now and what he's trying to achieve in terms of de-escalating some of this? Yeah, Secretary Blinken has been over a number of times in recent months since the October 7th attacks trying to do a number of things. Um, one— to try and quell the situation and to keep things from escalating. But at the root of that, really, is trying to find some kind of solution to end the war between Israel and Hamas that has been raging since October. Um, He has been very publicly pushing for uh, other countries to become involved in the rebuilding of Gaza for a two-state solution with Israel and the Palestinians, Um, things that if you talk to Israelis on the ground sound... uh, kind of pie in the sky and and way off in the distance um, as they're fighting this war. But the secretary is over there trying to come up with some kind of diplomatic solution that brings an end to the fighting, uh, at least for a period of time in Israel and Hamas where hostages might be released and perhaps there could be kind of a, a cooling down. His job becomes much harder as things become more volatile as they are now, where now you've got the proxy groups and us firing back at them. We're bombing Houthis. We're bombing Iranian-backed militias. We're hitting IRGC targets. All of this makes his job harder and at the same time more urgent because in the midst of all of this conflict is the potential for miscalculation by one side or another that could escalate things even further in a much more severe and damaging way. And the two-state solution, you know, this is something that the United States has pushed for for a long, long time, arguably for decades. The idea being here that you would create two nations. One would be Israel, and the other would be a nation, you know, within what is now the borders of Israel that would be for the Palestinians. Um, And that it would be them independently having a country, the Palestinians, uh, and no longer uh, the the, the kind of the present uh, uh, situation where you have Gaza kind of you know, cleaved off and you have Israel occupying parts of the West Bank. So the long hope for two-state solution is back on the table, at least as far as U.S. diplomats go. I think practically speaking, there is very little potential for that. 
um, I think you'd be looking at something that was pretty far off in the distance because Israel simply will not make an agreement that looks like they were threatened and harmed and then gave their enemies something that they wanted. So it sounds like part of Blinken's thinking is if you can try to at least put a pause on the conflict that is at the root of all this, you can at least take some of the pressure off all of these other proxy conflicts and potentially prevent things from spinning out of control. Yeah, take the pressure off and I suppose even potentially give the proxy groups a reason to stop fighting because, you know— The Houthis in Yemen, Hezbollah in Lebanon, the Iranian-backed groups in Iraq and Syria, they've all said that they're doing this in response to the October 7th attacks. Now, that may be somewhat disingenuous. You know, they've they've been doing a lot of things to Israel and U.S. interests in the region since before then. But the October 7th attacks were kind of this inciting force. It sort of lit a fuse. And I think what Secretary Blinken is trying to do now is if he can stop that conflict, does it then have the effect of giving all of the other groups in the Middle East a reason to stop the fighting for now. Mm. So one thing that I've been thinking in all of this is that, I mean, at least the, the stated goal of Iran and and these other groups, that they say that they want to support Gaza, want to support Palestinians, and that they want to demonstrate their disapproval for the U.S., supporting Israel and being involved in in um, this conflict between Israel and Gaza. Um, and in some ways, I wonder if that's kind of working, right? Like, you have this moment where, you know, despite Republicans in Congress calling for Biden to bomb Iran directly or, or act forcefully um, in response to the attack last week, like, I think that the average American has zero interest in seeing the U.S. getting involved in some big war in the Middle East. And that people are asking the question of, like, is it worth us to support Israel when it's causing all these other problems for the U.S.? So so I guess I, I do wonder if, like, the escalation and attacks being done by these groups are having the the effect that they are intending to have, causing the U.S. to kind of question, like, should we be backing Israel because this is creating so many problems for us? Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that you are that's exactly um, what people in the White House and the State Department are fearing right now is that these attacks, which can give the impression that things are spiraling out of control, which they may be, in fact, um, undermines public support for Israel. It undermines the Biden administration's efforts to stand with Israel and raises questions in the minds of the voting public of why are we doing this? And look, there are political consequences for this president for his support to Israel. I mean, we have already seen, I think, some pretty clear indications that the White House and the Biden campaign are worried about losing support in Michigan, which is the home to a large number of people um, who claim Arabic heritage or or, or who are Mm -hmm. Muslim and, you know, are very much supportive of Palestinian citizens, not of Hamas necessarily, but are Mm -hmm. really strongly objecting to the war that Israel is conducting in Gaza, which has killed, of course, you know, thousands of civilians in addition to Hamas fighters. So, the Biden administration is very sensitive to losing support among American groups, uh, particularly in key swing states. 
So, you know, this is a difficult position for this president to be in politically. It's a diff difficult position for him to be in in terms of regional security, in terms of alliances. You know, you can see how just this one event, this horrific event on October 7th, has these huge ripple effects that just keep expanding, uh, and sometimes in rather unpredictable ways. But to go back to your original point, I mean, is this kind of shaking of resolve in the United States and this undermining of support for Israel, is that something that Hamas and Iran and its proxies want? I think undoubtedly yes. Shane, thank you so much for unpacking all this. Really appreciate it. Always happy to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Shane Harris covers intelligence and national security for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Ariel Plotnik. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Lucy Perkins. Thank you to Bishop Sand and Maggie Penman. If you are looking for the latest updates on the big news of the day, check out our morning news briefing, The Seven. We bring you the seven stories you need to know about every weekday morning by 7 a.m. You can listen to it wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.